This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Sarah Downey, who's a venture capitalist and a philanthropist and somebody who likes video games and is concerned with privacy. In this conversation, we talk about free speech and privacy and where anonymity and the internet intersect and a lot of the different sorts of values that are shaping negatively public discourse. This is a classic liberal conversation, and you can take that for what it's worth. Sarah and I have a good rapport, and had we been living in the same state, I'm sure we would have had some sort of lawn party by now, COVID willing. Uh, I will now let you guys listen to myself and Sarah Downey. Podcast? (laughs) Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Yeah. Why would I cut that out of the recording? Here's why. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, that was not good. But that's that was important because that catapulted my interest in privacy because I, I lived it. I didn't just read about it or, or respond to a job ad. You know, it was like it was super important for my own protection. But then it became more important because it was about free speech. Because I just I think those two are completely linked and you okay. can't really separate them. All right. Giddy. Oh, he like, you know, do you ever have like the thing where you pet your cat while they're sleeping and they go, meh. Like every time I pet him while he's asleep, he goes, eh. <laughs> my, my cat goes, mm, mm, if yeah. I put my head on her head. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, privacy, free speech, accountability. Can you have because there's anon- anonymity is different than privacy. Then, yes, there's related ideas there, but yes. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I would say that true anonymity is really hard to achieve, just because of of where where we are technologically. Like everything that you do, there's a there's like a, a visible, obvious layer of, okay, let's say what you're tweeting, what you're liking, who you're following. Everybody n- knows about that. But then there's this metadata layer under the surface that is painting this extremely clear mm. digital picture of you, even if you yourself can't see it. And this is what empowers ads and uh, tracking and ad targeting and like these user persona profiles that are used to, to send you products and things. So there are some benefits, but there are also drawbacks. And, you know, it's true anonymity is pretty much impossible with that metadata layer going on. You can have pseudonymity, which is what you see a lot of people doing, especially on Twitter. And that's why they're your typical troll is pseudonymous. But if you really wanted to unmask them, let's say they they were doing true hate speech, not just speech that somebody doesn't like, but true hate speech, like sending a death threat or a bomb threat or something. Twitter has the capacity on the back end to identify who these people are. They have IP addresses, that kind of stuff. Okay. But I think generally um, 
privacy is more, it's kind of an umbrella that contains all of these concepts. Privacy is generally, like the reason why it matters to me is that it's this umbrella that tells you who is watching, like who is the audience that you perceive to be reasonably available for what you're saying. So in that sense, if I was talking to my grandma, who's very cool, so this might not be the perfect example, but if I'm talking to my grandma, I'm probably going to talk to her differently than I would my best friend, right? Like if I just went on, if I had a date last night, those conversations are going to be probably pretty different between those two people. And I think knowing who your audience is or could be is really important because it changes the the tone and the nature of what you're talking about. Okay. And so that is important because if that audience could be potentially the whole world and that context is taken out and removed from right under you, then you're going to self-censor. In most cases, there's some hmm. people who just say exactly what they think at all times. But as we're seeing from the current political and online climate, there are real consequences to speaking out, even saying things that I think are eminently reasonable. Such as what? Like, I mean, you, you know, firsthand with the Evergreen stuff, like the, the, like what Brett Weinstein said in that email was completely reasonable. You know, it's like once you're in the, the throes of a moral panic, yeah. it could be a single liked tweet. It could be a single word, you know, okay. it's, it's, it often doesn't line up to logic. So, well, that's a couple of different, um, there's a lot of different layers in that. If we're talking about social um, censorship or self-censorship because of what society might claim you've done or claim you believe or take your beliefs and put them suddenly into this ever-expanding bigotry box where they can you know, do whatever <laughs> they want to you because they put you in that position. Um, there's that layer. Then there's the other layer of the government. Uh, having access to ourselves and all the privacy concerns of that. There's the government protecting us potentially from corporations who are just kind of nomming on all this data and stuff. Um, so there's yep. a lot of different layers when it comes to privacy. But you linked privacy explicitly to free speech. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Yep. I think you, you're kinda, you, you've kind of started to draw that picture. But how are those two mm -hmm. things related in your mind? So there's speech as a value and speech as a right. And I think I'm conflating these two things okay. kind of on purpose, right? Because I keep using the Twitter example, and that's just because I happen to be active on Twitter and I have been for a long time. But there's Twitter is a private company, so they're allowed to cancel your account, do whatever they want, boot you from the service because you don't have a constitutional right to use Twitter. Yeah. Um, so if they censor people, they often complain, those people often complain about there's a first amendment issue here. And, and really the only first amendment issue I've seen come up with Twitter is them censoring president Trump because as a public official, there are different laws in play when it comes to his statements. But generally, private companies can kind of do whatever they want, and you're assuming the risk by being on the platform. It might suck and it might be unfair, but it's different than, you know, the government, like with Jordan Peterson and the issue of should the government mandate that you must use trans people's pronouns or not. And again, he said, okay, I will absolutely use pronouns if they ask me to, but that's an agreement between two individuals. That's just kind of the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not mandated speech coming from the government. So that was 
not related to privacy, but you know, that's the distinction between those two things. So the way that I see privacy affecting free speech the most in real life is the more cancellations there are, the more negative consequences that we see from our online behavior, the less people are likely to be themselves and the less they're likely to be curious, to actually look into topics because learning takes risk and speaking up takes risk. And we now have an environment, I'm worried that we have an environment where the risks of digging in intellectually or putting out a statement that you might agree with now, but might not later are so high that Hmm. everything is becoming kind of boring and not authentic, or there's, you know, we could talk about the whole silent majority thing, but I really worry that that's, that's the, the net effect Hmm. of all of this cancel culture is a, is a self-censorship regime. Yeah. One thing that I've, been watching for a few months now is the J.K. Rowling um, dust up that keeps on it's turning into a sandstorm. It just keeps on getting bigger (laughs) and bigger, it seems, uh, which is really fascinating on a number of different levels. But I admire her. I don't I don't think I agree with her uh, politically or I, I probably don't agree with her in a lot of different ways, but I don't see any of the things that the people who hate her or are scared to death of her, quote unquote, see when they accuse her of being transphobic. She's speaking to the rights of women, and those rights um, conflict with trans rights in certain people's estimation. And the way that that conversation's going and heading, where you have the elites getting on the side of the trans rights activists, but the trans rights activists are acting so phenomenally horrible by sending her constant death threats, by posting porn, uh, attaching pornography of themselves, or let's just say pictures of their genitals to, you know, posts about children, uh, that it might be the case that they're going too far. That might be the case. I think it definitely is the case that they're going too far. And I, I agree with you. I you know, I, I'm a fan of the Harry Potter books. Like I've done some Harry Potter cosplay. I play Wizards <laughs> Unite. If anybody wants to friend me in there, I'll send you spells. Is that potion, like a gifts, LARPing? It, it's like, like the um, thing. It's like the the Harry Potter version of Pokemon Go, okay. which is not. It's not as popular. But I have a group of friends. We 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 go to fortresses and we do wizarding challenges. So I'm kind of a big deal. I'm a magic zoologist. I'm level forty. So. Um, okay. I love all of her intellectual property and I didn't pay attention to her Twitter stream before this, but you know, like everybody else, you, you exist in the world and you get, you start to get this memo that JK Rowling is a horrible transphobic bigot. And so I decided to look into this and the series of tweets leading up to it, I found completely reasonable. And so then when she came out with her big blog post to defend herself, I read the whole blog post and I had the same feeling at the end that I did at the beginning, which is I, I don't understand this. The reaction is out of proportion with what she said. I don't think she, according to my own understanding of, of trans people and from many trans people who I've heard talk about this, JK Rowling didn't say anything transphobic. She didn't say anything unreasonable at all. And in fact, most of the trans advocate uh, activists that I know don't agree with her. I mean, don't disagree with her. So, so like to put that again, 
there's a very, very, very small, very radical group of trans activists way out to one side who are monopolizing this conversation. And there are many trans people, the vast majority of them, who disagree with those radical people's behavior and in fact think they're making us look bad. They're making us look irrational and they're making us look weak because, you know, we're very strong people to go through or to be dealing with something as serious as gender dysphoria and to, to for the people who have transitioned or are transitioning, the hormones, the psychological difficulties, the the possible rejection from friends, family, the employment difficulties, the possible painful surgeries, dealing with insurance like this is. These are huge, painful things to overcome, and they are not weak people. And what I've heard from them is that they re- they resent the fact that these radical activists are out there making them look weak. Like, we can't even hear, we can't even hear the suggestion that biological sex is real. Like, th- like if we hear that, we're going to crumble and wilt. And and they don't enjoy that. <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, as... As a woman reading this stuff, I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I have 35 years of experience on this planet being a woman, and I know that there are differences between me and my male friends or male partners. I know that. And, and just because there are differences, it doesn't mean that I'm worse than them. We're just different. They're better at some things than I am, and I'm better at other things than them. And I think I, you just have to have the self-confidence and the strength to accept that difference does not mean weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what this conversation boils down to, is what J.K. Rowling was essentially saying is that the the moniker, like the trans women are women phrase that you hear out there, and that's really what this conversation comes down to, is, is that according to radical trans activists, they actually mean trans women are women biologically. Like I, I don't necessarily think that most people understand that that's what they mean. Like, like Daniel Radcliffe put out a statement against JK Rowling saying that trans women are women. I, I highly doubt that he understands Hmm. that the biological assertion underlying that statement. But I think it's problematic because I actually hate the word problematic. I don't want to be one of those people, but we're all those people now. (laughs) It's problematic because like for me, I draw the line on anything that contradicts science. I don't care what side of the aisle it is. So I, I, I think it's a far left issue where we've gotten with the trans rights issue around Mm -hmm. whether biology exists, but you know, on the other side, on the far right, for example, creationism, I, I'm not a fan of that either. I think we need to be moving onward and upward scientifically and you can't be held back by some sort of ideology that doesn't serve anyone but yourself. So I think this is one of those issues. It's really interesting how the elites, you know, Radcliffe and uh, what's Granger's real name? Emma Uh, Watson. Yeah. I was like, Hermione? (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, and then, and then a bunch of, uh, you know, elites in, at least in Hollywood are on the side of the trans radicals because it seems to be the case that the conversation with regards to rights is that you do not actually question the minority. The minority's assertions are actually probably, if you just do the math, they're probably the progressive, you know, side of the coin. If you, mm-hmm. you, you just 
you get on board with what the radicals are saying, because eventually they might be a little crazy, but they're going in the right direction. So it, it just seems like an interesting self-fulfilling or self-reinforcing loop of sorts where the the establishment and then these radical, radical, radicals are on the same side, just like with Antifa just demolishing cities and then the elites complaining about the white supremacist that was on the street corner, like saying, look, the white supremacists are rising while the entire, you know, city is burning. And, and it, it, it makes for such a, you know, it's like gaslighting our entire society in a way. I, I think that yeah. there's a way to tie this into what we're saying about free speech, but I guess the there, question there is, is, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think no. the way I see it is it's like two plus two equals five in 1984 where we all go about our lives knowing in our minds that two plus two equals four. And in this case, we know that there are biological differences between men and women. We, we know this. 90, 98% of people know this. And then in public, we all have to declare that two plus two equals five. Or in this case, that trans women are women biologically, even though many trans women disagree with that statement. So... That's where it affects speech and that's where it Hmm. it affects science and progress because we're all walking on eggshells around a biological reality. And I think the trans issue is different with other cultural issues. For example, the acceptance of homosexuality or racial equality where you did have people becoming more conservative Usually people get more conservative as they get older, and then you have this shift as, as as time goes by, the conservative people kind of either die out or relax on these issues. Like, we've kind mm. of come to terms with the fact that this is a very tolerant place to be LGBTQIA letters. Um, mm. This is a, a tolerant place for the most part. And it, it, this is a different issue because we're not talking about a a social construction around is this good or bad is it good or bad to be homosexual? We're In this case, we're talking about a, an underlying biological truth. And that, to me, is a disconnect. Where, like, I, I'm okay dying on this hill with J.K. Rowling because that's not going to change. The, 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 the rhetoric claim, around it might. Yeah, the... the- it's not just a biological truth. It's a social reality that, that is being asserted by uh, J.K. Rowling's uh, version of feminism. And I'm not arguing for or against this, but it seems to be the case that she's saying that being female is a biological reality and is the basis for the oppression of women um, because men want to control women's bodies. It's kind of like a patriarchy theory of, uh, of womanhood. In so far as that's the case, women need protection uh, in certain instances or in certain levels, uh, freedom from ma- males. They, they should be able to determine what they do with their bodies. And that also includes where they put their bodies and the vulnerability that comes with their vo- bodies when it meets with the stronger male body. And, you know, just speaking stereotypically. So it's her argument isn't just that women are women, but that women have a unique uh, needs and therefore assert, need to assert rights uh, based on the way that they're treated by society. 
which yeah, dovetails I, I in an interesting way mm-hmm. with the uh, trans transgender topic because trans people will argue that they also receive violence based on the patriarchal norms that if you are a male to female transsexual it, the likelihood of you being uh, assaulted or harassed uh, based on your gender identity is very similar to the way that a woman be, would be harassed or assaulted based on her biological reality. So there, there's dovetailing rights and there's a dovetailing reality about protection, um, but but those two things butt up against each other at this magic point. And, and I don't know why they should because both of those things can exist simultaneously. Like m- my belief is that Gender identity and expression can be a spectrum. You can present all the way from extremely feminine to extremely masculine. Depend- it doesn't matter what your biological reality is. Um, and that can shift however you want it to. And then biological sex is real. You have a binary. And for the 0.002% of people who are intersex, I think uh, it was Colin Wright had a really good article on Quillette about this where he said it's kind of like flipping a coin. So one side is is male and the other is female. It's going to land on one side one or the other most of the time, but sometimes it lands on the side. And in that case, you would have an intersex person. It doesn't mean that there aren't two sides to the coin or that Mm. the coin can fall at any angle along the way, merely that intersex is a a combination of those those two. Um, So I think Gender identity is a spectrum, or can be. Biological sex is a binary. And trans people deserve equality and good treatment just the way that any other human being on this earth deserves it. Mm. So I I don't understand why the radical trans rights activists think that that these statements can be at odds. Like, absolutely trans people, especially trans women, are a, a vulnerable population. And so are many women. You know, like J.K. Rowling was talking about uh, her own sexual assault experience in this post, not for sympathy, I don't think, but to prove that point. And uh, it just seemed to me like a woman who her heart is in the right place and people are taking issue with her language, perhaps more than what Mm. she's actually trying to, to say. She's kind of coming out and saying, hey, I like I respect trans people and and want them to have equal rights. Yeah. Uh, but I also I also believe that as a woman and my lived experience on this earth is that of a woman, there are just certain things that we're going to have different from trans women. And that's OK. And that, that's my belief, too. I, I just I fail to see why, like hmm. the, the menstruation question, for example, this is what actually caused her post to come up was there was an article that someone had written called it was like covid uh, it was like making a better life for people who menstruate in a post-COVID world or something to that effect. Yeah. And J.K. Rowling kind of snarkily responded to that headline in a tweet and said, I think there's a, a word for people who menstruate. And let me let me think of what it is, like women's, women. And that caused the blow up because obviously, or maybe not obviously, to some of the people I've talked to about it, but a trans man can still menstruate. It depends on the hormone cocktail. It depends what's going on. And, and also plenty of, of women don't menstruate, whether it's a function of being postmenopausal or perhaps you're an extreme exerciser, your period can stop. There, there's all kinds of different cases. Um, the presence of a period does not make you a woman. But 
it also ignores the reality that the vast, vast majority of people who menstruate are women. So Hmm. is it a case of us muddying language yet again for the sake of tiptoeing around possible offense? And for me, like... I always prefer things to be clear. I like words to have clear definitions so that we can have the same yes. conversation about the same things. Yeah. And I, you know, as a writer, I'm sure that JK Rowling feels the same way. So her point was you're using several words and muddying this definition around a thing that is 99.9% women. The, Framing this in terms of free speech is actually pretty weak in the sense that free speech would allow your f- speech to not be concise anymore. You have the freedom, you have the freedom to deny reality if you want. That is your freedom to do. You have the freedom to have your own norms. I guess where it butts up against freedom of speech is when those norms are enforced, but society will always have to enforce certain norms. It will always enforce certain norms. So the conversation isn't about freedom so much as the enforcement of a certain uh, set of reality or certain relationship to reality or certain uh, normative uh, barrier uh, between us and reality. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's not enforced by the government, but it's enforced by other people, usually on the internet, who are going to attack you and rage against you and, and scream and cry and throw tantrums until you start using their preferred words. And that's what we're seeing with J.K. Rowling around this. So it's not enough to just argue free speech. You're not just arguing free speech. You're arguing for a certain relationship to reality that is possessed by our language and defending people to assert. I guess maybe maybe the free speech is the defense of people to assert uh, their truth or truth per se. Yeah. Is there not some sort of arbiter and is there packed in the idea or underneath the idea of free speech some sort of arbiter of the truth? I, I hope there is. I like. I have a deep reverence for reality, and I think a lot of hmm. free thinkers or people who are out there getting attempted to be canceled right now are saying things that are objectively true. And this, there's been this shift away from an objective reality or objective truths in favor of feelings, hmm. or, or you know, I was, I'm. I'm reading the the book, The Coddling of the American Mind right now, which yeah. has a lot to do with, you know, uh, Evergreen and everything. And this, this shift from, are, are you? I haven't gotten to that point yet. That's yeah. going to be exciting for me. Um, no, no, it's not. It's kind of an obscure <laughs> site, but I'm still excited. It's just That's just my one claim cool, to frame at this point. Sick. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the idea that if we recategorize speech as violence then we're warranted to take violent acts ourselves to suppress speech. That is what I'm seeing happening all over the internet, and that's what's happening to J.K. Rowling. It's like the death threats that she's receiving for saying something that shouldn't be controversial at all. It just kind of blows my mind. And I think it's 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 worsened by the fact that we're in this pandemic, we're in yeah. quarantine, it's been going on for a long time, mental health is at an all-time low, we've got an election coming up, there's all these factors interweaving to create this bizarro world right yeah. now. Yeah. Could you, um, I don't know if you're able to do this, but it would be interesting experiment, thought experiment at least, why are you so 
reverent towards reality. What was your moment in life that that convinced you that reality is something to uh, not take for granted or to respect Mm. or to revere? I don't know. Um, Are you familiar with like personality typings or like the the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or anything like that? I'm, I'm the one who always forgets. I'm that personality type that always forgets that there's personality types, but I'm aware of them. Um, well, I'm working on a, a, a project with, uh, one of my best friends about the Enneagram, which is a personality test that Mm -hmm. in a personality typing system that characterizes people according to their motivations, fears, and desires, like core, core things that don't ever change over, over the history of your life. And my type is, type eight which is the challenger and the core fear of the eight is to be controlled or destroyed by other people and uh in my view people controlling what i can say or can't say is like the ultimate hell for me like i don't like the world of 1984 has been so important to me because it's a piece of art that makes you vividly feel what it would like to live in a world of total external control and that is my nightmare so i think it's that core fear of being controlled and told what's what i can say or can do or can't say or do combined with like just having parents who were very big on science and like some of the first books that they ever got for me was this like big set of science books for kids about biology. And my dad was big into geology and he would take me looking for fossils. And just from a very early age, I was comforted by facts. And, hmm. you know, that's why, that's why I went into the law, even though it ended up not really being a career that fit my personality because the, the not wanting to be controlled thing doesn't work very well. If most jobs in the law are like, you will give FaceTime, you will sit behind a desk, you will play golf to get clients, you will wear a suit. None of that really worked. But, um, I just, I, I, I really enjoy there being a shared reality that we can build on. And okay. so I, I'm just not a touchy feely person. I'm not like a big feelings person. I try to work on that, but my whole life has kind of been <laughs> yeah. like, all right, okay, what's the action plan? Like feelings yeah. aside, what are we actually going to do? Well, do you, you see any way in which the law can uh, be used to facilitate a open platform and open internet that um, facilitates freedom of speech and also protects people from the speech that would silence them? Uh, it's like, a big question. Are these, are these private companies just going to run the world and we have no say over it? It's it's hard because what they're doing right now, I think, is untenable. Because what they're doing right now is censorship on a piecemeal basis. Like, they'll pop in here, they'll delete these couple thousand subreddits and then they'll leave these seemingly arbitrarily um same with facebook same with twitter where they're getting into it right now scares me because it's gone beyond it's gone to the level of let me tell you that this is factually wrong and that that to me is a complete overstep i think it has to be pretty like what they're doing with um trump on facebook for example and i'm not 
I don't don't use Facebook at all, so I've just read the articles about it. But apparently, there will be a subhead under a, a statement that he's made or an article that will say we fact checked this and it's wrong. So that uh, that scares you, me. Because- you want that though. You want reality. You want reality to intrude into conversations. But why does that scare you then? Well, I guess because what I'm seeing is incorrect. So they'll declare things to be incorrect that are, in fact, correct based on my own research. So what I want is that if you are going to have a third-party arbiter describing things as false or true, I want it to be accurate, and I haven't seen it be accurate. Okay. So, but I don't know who should do that. I mean, the government generally does a horrible job of everything that they're tasked with. You know, we, I've never had a great time at a government website or in a government building. So I definitely don't trust them to handle the clusterfuck that is the Internet and yeah. declare this or that to be true. And then again, with big companies like Facebook or Google, like their mandate is not free speech. Their mandate is to their shareholders. So I don't know. I mean, I do think that there's creative or interesting things that could be done to address parts of this. For example, I would like to see employment contracts start to include an out for things that you have said or done online beyond a certain period of time. So, for example, I would like to include in our employment contracts that we can't fire somebody for a a tweet that they've liked more than two years ago. Hmm. Because I think at a certain point that interferes with human's ability to evolve and grow and make mistakes. And Mm. that those are things that we should all desire in a society like ours, but are getting trampled right now. So I think that there are maybe contractual things here or there that people could do. Uh, But then again, like if people are sick of the censorship on something like Reddit or Twitter or Facebook, new companies can and will pop up like, Parlor is relatively new and popped up, and we'll see how that experiment goes. But generally, what's good about capitalism and free markets is that you have to have empathy and listen to your customer. And if your customer has a need that's not being solved or is being solved poorly somewhere else, mm-hmm. you can attract those customers if you solve that that problem. And again, it's it's tough because no one's really been able to get a handle on like the censorship or content moderation thing online. But it's it's a huge problem worth solving and you could attract a huge number of users very quickly if you, if you solve it. Yeah. Do you think then that there's a normative solution as with regards to free speech and the underlying values beneath free speech um, to have those reasserted somehow? And do you see a path of that being claimed again? Is it, you say that it's untenable for these companies to be going around and piecemeal censoring. Is it also untenable for people to construct this irreality, um, totalitarian irreality uh, and, you know, expect that everybody's going to, uh, Mm -hmm. that they can just cancel the whole world <laughs> you know like eventually they're going to run out of people of can- uh, to cancel so they'll cancel themselves yeah. so the, the mob's going to die itself but what's going to come yeah, in that wake yeah. how do we either speed that along or deter it from 
I do think the pendulum, it swings back and forth between the political sides over the course of history. And I think this is a really bizarre time because we've been at the rise of social media for several years now. And the 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 way that universities have become very very left leaning and the safe space stuff it's all kind of coalescing to create this this world where people don't want to hear what they don't want to hear and they will very upset yeah. about that yeah but part of why i wrote that article is i think the way this changes is if people just regular people start standing up in their lives, not even in big ways, just in the little sphere around them, when they hear somebody saying something that they know or or have strong reason to believe is not true. Like, the, for me, one of the worst parts about the witch hunt philosophy is seeing the regular people sit by and allow it to happen when they know that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do believe we're dealing with a very small minority of people who are incredibly loud. And so there is a silent majority of people who disagree, but they're afraid of having the lens pointed at them Mm. or having the the sights of the gun pointed at them. But imagine what would happen if everybody kind of stood up in their own ways at once. You wouldn't know where to fire. It would be impossible. So I think part of why, like I had several years on Twitter of, really not saying anything or not saying anything controversial, which is not me. Like I'm, I'm a controversial person. I I have strong opinions on things. Um, and I had self-censored for a while and I was just feeling like this empty shell of who I was supposed to be online. I wasn't getting anything out of it. I feel like what you put out, you get back. And I wasn't putting out my authentic self because I was afraid of that kind of backlash. But I reached a point where I thought, you know, if someone wanted to come for me, if someone wanted to cancel me, if someone wanted to construct a narrative that I'm a bad person, they could do that because I'm I'm not perfect and I'm living my life on the internet. I'm liking things or following people and I'm sure someone, it, it takes nothing to do it, to, to cancel somebody in this environment. So rather than just continue to be scared and like sit back and take a backseat passive view of this bizarreness happening in the world i'm just gonna fucking start talking Hmm. and i still censor myself to some degree because i'm not an idiot but (laughs) you know i'm saying things that i think are generally reasonable um that the general population agrees with but they're afraid to say and so my hope is that if they see me doing this they'll be more inclined to do it because if i do it and i'm still here and i'm still on twitter and i'm still standing and i'm still employed i they can do it like, I look at Elon Musk doing what he does and continuing to be Elon while the mob charges at him. And that gives me hope uh, that, yeah. you know, he's unaffected. Maybe he is, but he doesn't show it. And I think if we all did that, there would mm. be the mob would lose its power. Yeah. So it's either it's, it's that and it's it's don't apologize for what you didn't do or don't apologize for the effect on someone because you know your intent. I think intent matters a lot more than outcome. And we have to get back to that. So I think it's hmm. just a, it's a matter of a lot of people standing up and refusing to kneel for things that they didn't do. And that could turn the tide of this. Have you received much of blowback or negative um reaction yet not yet maybe i will after being on here (laughs) um i was i'd say i get 
for every 200 very positive comments, which are almost entirely in private, I will get yeah. three negative ones almost entirely in public, <laughs> which is kind of the dynamic that I expected because people are afraid. People are afraid to say even reasonable things uh, in public. So that's generally been the, the feedback. Although there's been weird stuff. Like I, so I live in Boston and I, I had a, an anonymous email from a woman who was in a, a group of women at MIT. And she was like, hey, I just want to give you the heads up that there's this group that's talking shit about you, like you're a bigot for putting this article out. And I completely disagree. And here's some screenshots of what they're saying. And I was like, first of all, like, you can say what you want to say, but I just find it cowardly and bizarre that they're not actually talking to me. And it's like, here I am I'm on Twitter. I'm on medium. I have my email out there. Like anyone can contact me at any point. And yet there's these people I don't even know in my town sitting around scheming about me. on Facebook, <laughs> And they describe me as like an extraordinarily powerful venture capitalist in Boston. And I'm like, guys, I'm not even accredited. Like, I don't even meet the accreditation requirements to be an investor based on my personal income. It's not high enough. Like, I can make investments because I work at a firm, so it's a loophole. But, like, I'm pretty much a regular fucking person. Like, huh. it's just, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre thing. So I would say, yes, mostly positive. Um, and it's been great because now that I've put myself out there as a, as a, a wrong thinker people see me as a safe person that they can vent to so i can't tell you how many like oh. vent sessions i've had where mm. people are like can i just tell you what i'm dealing with in my yeah. company or in my family or online and it's like I, it, it, they're scared yeah. it really is bad you know, a lot of them are like, I have kids. I, I can't afford to say something right now and risk getting fired because I'll be blacklisted. Like Boston Tech, especially where I am, where I am is a small world. So if you get a reputation for being a racist or a bigot or a transphobe, that's going to follow you. And, How do you know uh, that they're not, though? How do you know that these people aren't just dressing themselves up yeah. as moderates and they're really just they, they voted for Trump and they might again? Like, how do you know they're not worth canceling? So it's just based on what they're telling me their reaction is to what's going on in the world. Like the belief that biological sex is real. They're afraid to say that. They're afraid to say that, be labeled a bigot and be shunned. And I think that's an extreme overreaction for something that the vast majority of the population knows to be true and has known for an extraordinarily long time. So it feels like we're getting set back in our inability to talk yeah. about this. Do you think that it's, there's any recourse in the law to uh, protect people's <laughs> beliefs <laughs> in a way? I mean, yeah. we're in, in, yeah, uh, I see that. Yeah. In like the Britain, they're enforcing, you know, uh, certain uh, things with regards to gender and sex and stuff like that. But I don't think we're there yet here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you would have a reasonable claim if you went to an employment lawyer and said you were terminated for this reason. I mean, it's it's at will employment, so it's tough because it's the the bar to fire somebody is incredibly low. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I saw some cases on on Twitter, for example, where someone was saying my employer is coming for me because I didn't post a black square during the Black Lives Matter, like the peak of it at the beginning. 
That is horrifying to me because that's not even speech. It's lack of speech. It's in you're inferring this person's racist intent by their failure to do something. Mm -hmm. And that to me seems like if you get a good employment lawyer, that should be an open and shut case. That's Mm -hmm. just completely absurd. What about um, like uh, suing on the grounds of stress or uh, inhospitable work environment, which seems to be what's going to happen, whether or not people claim it to happen? I'm pretty sure that the diversity, equity and inclusion, anti-racist training in the ways that I've studied it at Evergreen and other places, not just Evergreen, it really does create a lot of stress and a lot of fracture and ends up causing people to mistreat themselves in really egregious ways. Mm. Is there recourse with regards to, you know, the law to kind of say I was damaged by this program or these programs, Mm -hmm. these codes are introducing a wild amount of stress in my life? There could be, but usually the bar for emotional distress and these kinds of things is incredibly high. Yeah. So it's again, it's it's kind of comparable to what you're seeing on Twitter, where people will exclaim that speech is violence or they've been yeah. harmed. This is yeah. literally killing them, and it, yeah. and in fact, it would have to be a very high. I mean, you'd have to point to like hospital bills. Like I was so traumatized that yeah. I I became non-functional, and it was a period of sustained harassing behavior. So. Yeah. Maybe like a class action lawsuit because so many employers are doing this at this period in time. And if it turns okay. out that these programs, in fact, make people more aware of racial differences or gender differences in a not positive way, then you could see something like that happening. But that would be it would be better. The solution would be better just to speak up. And if you get fired, you get fired and move on with your life. But people just need to take the risk. That's the better way forward. I think so. I think that's the best and easiest way forward, but in order for it to work, it has to happen in mass. It can't be that one person decides to stand up and cuz for a while they're going to be the bigot in their workplace. But if eight or nine people stand up at the same time in their own lives, it's much harder to fire all those people. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Well, there was that letter that was released, and this is something I've been avoiding talking about because it's the media talking about the media, and it's just yeah, the Har- Harper's huge, letter, freaking, yeah, like circle jerk, you know. But it was it's really interesting that the reaction to that letter, which is a bunch of basically left leaning uh, progressive uh, elites, signed this letter against what they called cancel culture, and. W- the whole letter was just slamming on Donald Trump. And it seemed to me as like, oh, we don't support Trump. We don't support Trump. So don't cancel us. Don't cancel us. And we just don't think that you guys should be going around firing everybody. We're going to go yes. around and cancel you. And the, the the whole reaction like proved the letter in turn. So that was an instance of a bunch of people standing up. Yes. I think that was a good thing because – they're going to weather the storm. I mean, there was some blowback. There were some people later who claimed, I didn't know what I was signing or yeah. I didn't know that I was signing it with these people, which of course is, it's so hypocritical because did you look at what you signed? I mean, the whole point is, is it's a completely non-controversial statement that we value mm-hmm. free and open discussion and speech without, without fear of recourse. Like everyone, I don't mm-hmm. think free speech should be a, like one side one side shouldn't own that versus another like this the pendulum swings so there might be more repression coming from the right or the left at one time but yeah 
it doesn't it, seem uh, like it should be controversial. And then the, the response showed that we do need this. The response was perfect in many ways because it it was yeah. so <laughs> it was just so ironic that the response it was kind of like, hey, free speech is good and cancel culture sucks. And then the response was cancel these people. Yeah, they're elites. Only elites are complaining about being canceled. And it's like, dude, look anywhere online and you'll see regular people like small time writers, professors, truck drivers, teachers it like it's not it's not just jk rowling who's been bullied through her dms it's real people (laughs) like and if you don't know someone who's been canceled yet you will and if it's not it it could be you you know like the the mob is going to turn on itself it's sooner or later and it already has you you can see plenty of examples of that happening already Mm -hmm. Do you look at this storm and think it's going to pass? Or what are the things that you are hoping um, slow it down or deter it? Uh, I don't know. I I, I hope <laughs> it's going to pass. That was a great sound. I wish I had a button that I'm just made been, that it's, sound. It's like that sigh expresses uh, so exactly. much because I have been – it was like this several year period of self censorship combined with this week long period where I was like, am I going to, I got to fucking write something. And then three days straight of sitting in front of the screen, typing out and basically an 8,000 word treatise on, you know, my emotionally, this is how I'm feeling. And I feel not good about this combined with me trying to make the argument that people should be better critical thinkers and should start standing up against the the unreality that they see around them. And then the the blowback from that, which is mostly positive but still stressful. So I get this like anxiety every time I refresh Twitter or I open Instagram DMs or my my inbox. Mm-hmm. And it's like I would make that same decision a thousand times because I said what I believe in and people know where I stand. But it's it's hard. It's hard to to go against a very vocal group of people, even if you, you disagree with them and then they're my, the minority. It's like it's it's like the knife edge is you either sit there silently and watch it pass you by and and don't be a participant in your own country's future, or you participate and you risk falling on the pyre. So mm. I'm glad that I did it, but. I don't know how this gets resolved. I think, like I said before, I think COVID is a big contributor here because you've got people at home not working. Unemployment is high. Fears about finances are high. And then people are living vicariously through the Internet. So you've got this high depression, high anxiety and people are letting it all fly online. So it's creating an even more of an Mm. echo chamber than for. And and just even the, the time involved, like if you're out working, you do not have as much time to sit and be a keyboard warrior. So getting back to work and school or a, is... Or are you a monument smasher either for that? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't uh, partaken in that. I've, I've gotten into some arguments with people around that because it's that's a gray area for me. Like a lot of things are a gray area. It, there's artistic value and history with a lot of these things, but I do think it's a case by case analysis of what, what does this mean to people 
How is it making them feel? What were the historical considerations for this? Like who paid for this? Who wanted it to exist? Like in some cases in Boston, there's a monument that freed slaves paid for and wanted to exist. But then a piece of uh, a a letter arose from like 1867, I want to say, maybe... it was Frederick Douglass commenting on this this statue, saying, I'm glad that it exists. It was paid for by freed slaves, but I actually dislike, I have a visceral dislike of how it looks, because it's like Abraham Lincoln standing above this slave who's on his knees. And, like, it doesn't look good. Yeah. I can't disagree with that. And then you have someone as important as him commenting on that very thing, and it's like, okay, let that one go. But I think we need to have a reasoned discussion, if possible, about these things, rather than just letting a mob run around tearing these things down. They have no, it's not like guaranteed. They're not doing historical research before running out there with like yeah. torches and pitchforks. Yeah. They're just There's like fucking it down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, I don't know how it's going to end. COVID is a big part of it. I'm very concerned about the election because it kind of seems like no matter which way this goes in November, there's going to be a tidal wave of anger on either side. Hmm. Like I was just looking at Twitter before I, I got on this call with you and the silent majority is trending because Trump just tweeted that the silent majority will reign. And, um, <laughs> and so the left, Japan the left response to this, <laughs> he really Either that or is he's a, a perfect communicator. Cause he just, he just knows intuitively. I don't think yes. he's thinking up here. It's just, it's this, it, it's just like, Oh, I know. I know how to get them. I know how oh, to get yeah. them completely It's upset. brilliant and terrible at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And I do, you know, I, I have to say I've come around to respect the fact that he says it like he says it directly to the people. And there is something admirable to that. But is he presidential? No. Like, does he need to do some spell checks and grammar checks absolutely like it it doesn't there's pros and cons to it but he said he said that about the silent majority and everyone on the left appears to be saying see he's gonna work with russia to rig the election so that when he does win he's gonna blame it on the silent majority and say see i told you they were there they rose up and they voted and then the right is saying no we actually do exist and Mm. We're being silent right now because this is mm. such a left-dominated discourse where the orthodoxy is all coming from the left, and we're self-censoring. So <laughs> I don't know where, the, where we're going to land, but it's not going to be good either way. So that's why being being in Boston, I'm kind of like, maybe I'll get an Airbnb <laughs> in northern Maine. I'll vote, and I'll just drive to northern Maine, and I'll like be in the woods, and I'll wait it out because it's going to be scary. Huh. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's a really hopeful message that you just gave everybody. Sorry. I do think there is a hopeful message, which is COVID will pass. The election will pass, regardless of which way it goes. And the mob loses power when people stand up to it. Like, either by not apologizing to it, or by standing up for other people who are being mobbed, or just by standing up for the small truth that you see in your life. I think that is the only way that we solve this. And I and I've personally I've seen it happen in the few the last few weeks I've seen more of it. And I don't I don't know if that's just my 
confirmation bias that I'm yeah. looking for it, but I'm mm -hmm. seeing it among people in my own life who previously wouldn't have. So yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's any choice. I don't think that there's any choice. I think people are going to be put in such awkward positions that they're just going to like, just have to say something. I think that it's gotten to a point where they can see that it's not going to stop. The, the, the people that are pushing this stuff are not going to be satisfied with anything. They're going to keep on going. So, um, it, yeah. it's just like the cost analysis on that is that you kind of have to. So what are you going to stand up for next? Do you have something on your plate? Yeah, I have a couple blog posts mostly written and I'm in that mindset where I'm thinking like, it's like, putting your hand in a fire. Do I want to put my hand in the fire? <laughs> like I, I kind <laughs> of do, but so I, I've been thinking a lot about how capitalism hmm. is not evil. And I have a, a piece mostly written about that. And, and my journey to this idea started, you know, growing up in Connecticut and then getting educated in Connecticut and in upstate New York and then in Connecticut again for law school, very liberal upbringing. I literally believed that Democrats equal compassion for people, Republicans equal greed and money. That was like hammered into me forever. And I fully believed that. And especially like I'm bisexual. So I, I, I was like, gay rights, very important to me. I have a lot of gay friends. This is something that I was like going to fight to the death or abortion rights. I really care about women's individual rights. So I was always unquestionably a Democrat. Um, and I always viewed capitalism as this like evil force that just made the rich richer. And I did not see any gray to that, to that idea. Mm. And I never, I was hardly even exposed to conservatives. And if I was, it was like the young con Republicans club on campus with like the guys with the bow ties who just like kind of seem like aliens. And then, <laughs> you know, like, like I remember in law school, we had a conservative professor and before he came in the room, there was this rumbling like, oh yeah, I hear this, I hear he's a conservative. And it's like, is he going to come in with fucking horns on his head? I don't know. And he was, he ended up being my favorite professor. So like. I started seeing things that didn't add up with reality um, over the over the course of my education, or you know the the what I'd heard about Jordan Peterson, for example, as an alt right crazy person, and then reality did not add up with that assertion. And I read Twelve Rules for Life, and it was amazing. And it's all about like just taking ownership of your own shit, and that really resonated with me. And then I ended up working in startups. Um, mm not even really knowing much about startups, but literally found my first job on Craigslist in the legal services section in Boston. I was like $90,000 in debt. I was like, fuck it. I, I got to do something. And through working in startups and then eventually investing in startups, which is what I do now, I saw firsthand how capitalism is the answer to a lot of these inequalities that I see around me. Like, for example... And on a very removed basis, right, high level, what we do as investors is we invest in founders, many of whom are not personally wealthy, many of whom this is their first company. They're like putting their company on their personal credit cards, their house, second mortgages, et cetera. They're taking a huge risk to build a product that they believe so much in and it will not work 
if they are not solving a core problem for a, a larger, important group of people. So you have to have empathy to build a product that's going to solve these problems. And then yeah. if you do, the whole pie grows for everyone. So we get our money back. They become wealthy. Every one of the early employees who joined them becomes wealthy. Every single person who was there who has equity in that company, their life is now changed. And then what we do is we reinvest in more companies, but we also invest in philanthropic pursuits. So like I'm on the board of a, a nonprofit in Boston called Inner City Weightlifting that serves uh, guys who basically are most impacted by mass incarceration. So guys who have been like in and out of jail, in gangs, most of them have been stabbed or shot, like a really tough situation to be in. And ICW teaches them to become personal trainers and then br helps bring in paid clients. So they, oh, okay. their income goes from like 10K annually to 60K sometimes or more, and they can get other jobs in other industries. Yeah. And it's like, it's a perfect example of like capitalism at work because I, through my job as an investor, I can contribute to them. And then they are providing their students with a meaningful vocation that allows them economic mobility that they can then use to get out of these unsafe neighborhoods and environments. And every boat kind of rises with that yeah, top. Yeah. So like so I, I went on this full journey of thinking very black and white about both the political parties and about capitalism, that capitalism only belonged to Republicans and it was inherently greedy to seeing how much good it can do for so many people who are associated with it. And I'm not saying that it's perfect, right? But in my own experience, I've only seen people rise because of the hard work that entrepreneurs are doing. Like I think the new American dream is entrepreneurship. It, it used to be the you work in a job forever and you're loyal and you get a paycheck and it's it's straightforward. Yeah. That that's no longer. You now have to have ownership and you mm. have to take ownership of yourself. But I've seen it happen for so many people. Their lives have been completely changed that I am a true believer. Well, speaking going back to the Enneagram what kind mm. of personality traits does it require to be an entrepreneur? Very interesting question. So of the founders in our portfolio, and there are hundreds, there are common traits that I have noticed among the most successful. One of them is urgency. So it is not enough to be very smart uh, or to be very visionary. You have to have a fire lit under your ass at least if you're in a venture backed company. So that's, that's the specific class of companies where you expect to have hyper growth. So you're raising a lot of money because you're, you're on a trajectory that's just insane. So the average small business owner doesn't need to necessarily have that same sense of urgency, uh, urgency. They need to have a sense of ownership and responsibility and all that. But yeah. for a venture backed company, you've got to do a ton in a very small period of time. And so that means if you're going to fail, you fail quickly, you learn from it and you just move on. You can't have an ego about it. You can't dwell on it. You just go. Another thing is intellectual honesty. So hmm. it's different than straightforward honesty, which is what are, what are the facts? So straightforward honesty is, are you giving me the revenue numbers for your, for your company as they really are? Intellectual honesty is when you frame these metrics to your investors, 
Are you selling it like it's an absolute win? Or are you being more honest about it and saying, look, these numbers could be better. I'm not satisfied with them. And here's why. So I think that the intellectual honesty piece is really important because if they're not honest with themselves about how it's really going, they can't get our help as much to move forward and they can't set the right goals for themselves. And they, they also uh, potentially uh, just ignore problems and not solve the problems yeah. that would ruin them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it kind of contradicts with the image that a lot of people have in their heads of founders that they're just huge egos and they're crushing all the time. First of all, hmm. nobody's crushing all the time. And there's a there's this unspoken rule in investing in Silicon Valley that you, you always have to be crushing it and you always have to be displaying how great your startup is going. Most of these people are, it is an incredibly tough job. They're lonely. There's so much going on business-wise, psycho psychologically, and they're not crushing it all the time. I wish there was more vulnerability and authenticity about that, but at a minimum, you need to have that with your investors and with yourself. Because like, if shit's not going well, it, it doesn't do any good to just paper it over, okay. right? So those those are, are important, important things. And then I think um, a mission orientation is important too. So you can't just be in it because you want to make money. Anybody wants to make money, that doesn't really matter. I think the people that I've seen that are the most successful get up and live and breathe this thing. They are... Like I just invented in a mental health company where the founder, he was on the wrong antidepressant for 13 years hmm. and it completely ruined his life for that period of time. And when he finally got the right therapist, the right medication, it was like an actual cloud lifted. And he, he is so passionate about preventing that problem in other people that he is building a company ar around it. So like, mm -hmm. it, you know, it doesn't, that's a, that's a really extreme example. It doesn't have to be that extreme, but I think at a minimum, you have to really love the idea that you're trying to put out into the world. You can't just be like, Hey, you know, I heard, I heard this Bitcoin thing is big. So like, let me, uh, put together a slide deck around that and try to get some dollars, yeah, which right. I've seen so many times. <laughs> Here's a question. It seems that people who are naturally naturally left-leaning, compassionate people, um, it seems that the democratic platform in a certain respect, or at least the far left, the further left you get, the more this is the case, that they want philanthropy in the world, but they want the government handling that. And it seems like you could win a lot of people to your philosophy if you could show that capitalism actually... Um, has the capacity to be more caring, but people have a vision of capitalism in their head that philanthropy is, it's not a central tenet. So how do you sell, how do you build in, how do you uh, promote philanthropy within a capitalist society so that it actually is streamlining those, uh, you know, those problem solutions that the government is being foisted upon to the great detriment to everybody because they're shitty at doing this of solving societal ills. Do you think it's tenable for capitalism to do that work instead of the government? And how would you facilitate mm -hmm. that happening? So in addition to the tax breaks that you get, which are nice for philanthropic pursuits, 
um, like what I'm seeing right now with philanthropy is it, among VCs especially is a lot of them have their own sort of pet nonprofits or ideas that they care about and support. And uh, for me, that's, you know, mass incarceration and um, like the overfilling of prisons and just the rough ride that a lot of uh, people who have been in and out of the prison system have to deal with um, or free speech, for example. But like my partner, Jeff, co-founded a nonprofit in Boston that it almost is like a VC firm where it has a portfolio of nonprofits that it supports. And it, it mobilizes the tech workers in Boston to donate. And then they crowdsource and crowdfund the nonprofits in Boston that deal with, it's basically under, under-resourced kids in educational and entrepreneurial enterprises. So like we'll have events where the whole Boston tech community comes together. Those, those nonprofits working with under-resourced kids come together. These are not groups that usually get to hang out and get to see each other, but they're all entrepreneurs. I mean, they all have that in common. Like whether yeah. you're doing it for profit or not, it's a hard road. You're kind of taking everything on yourself. So we have these mixers, basically, where the tech people end up choosing which nonprofits to fund and to bring oh, okay. into the the fold. And then we did something recently where, like in venture capital in a firm, you don't have equity. There's no equity in the firm, but you do have carried interest. So that's kind of like the equity portion of your pay. You have a salary and then you have this carried interest where when the fund does well and has a multiple, you get a multiple on your carried interest. And so... A lot of us pledged uh, 1% of our carried interest to these nonprofits, which is going to be, you know, depending if we do our job, it's going to be a sizable, sizable amount. Um, and, you know, we went around within our firm. We didn't make it mandatory for people, but we gave them the option. We didn't shame anybody if they didn't, but most people did come in and make that donation, which means that those nonprofits are now tied to us in our journey alongside yeah. the companies that we invest in and we're all in that boat where again where the pie gets big it's big for yeah. everybody yeah yeah so it, i think it's like right now it's on an individual basis and there's not really any enforcement of it other than like are you the kind of person who wants to do the right right thing or not <laughs> yeah, yeah but i kind of i i kind of believe that humanity is is generally good that's my my belief is that people are generally good. Maybe not in mass, maybe not in mobs, but I think the average person does want to do the right thing. Yeah, it seems to me to be the case that if that the best way to support or uplift a uh, marginalized community um, isn't through governmental assistance. It's to go through and if education doesn't work, entrepreneurship is something that works. You don't have to be. You don't have to be a good student to make a successful business. The, those values are actually more universal, I think, than than desk job values or mm -hmm. values that that cause you to be a good person, crunching numbers or listing Completely. facts. You know, um, so it seems to be the case that if the right or if the center wants to kind of take the wings out of the sails of the left, is to com completely beat them to the punch and say, you know, we're going to make you rich. Or, you know, and, and reframe yeah. the conversation about, you know, why is your community failing? How do you enrich the community, um, you know, in this way, you know? I, I totally agree. I think America is a country of 
entrepreneurs. I mean, like we are risk takers. Like a lot of people in America are are comfortable trying things and failing. And it's never been better timing to found a company because with the internet, you can do pretty much anything. The costs are so much lower. Every software that you could ever imagine that you would need to start a business has become cheap. Um, the costs of computing are cheap. It's you know, if there was one thing that I think should be a utility, perhaps it's the internet because it is the great equalizer. And like with, with access to hmm. all of the classes and all of the resources, like anybody can become an entrepreneur and really make something and rise out of poverty and do something for themselves. And that's, I truly believe that. I think that hmm. could be the answer. Um, why don't we end it there? Because that's the good note. And I, I think we're going to go into the dark clouds. If we <laughs> I know. I've been trying not to go into the clouds. but Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.